there's something whenever we get to that song. It's, it's probably an older one that uh, many of you have been familiar with. I think I, we grew up singing that one in church. But there is, there is something for just being able to stand and say, you know what, God, you're, you're worthy. You know, and as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and God just keeps showing us over and over and over again how he is better, how Jesus is greater, we do get to this point where we realize he is worthy, right? Like if he is greater, if he is all these things that we've been seeing the book of Hebrews show us he is, he is worthy. So it, it is, it's really cool as a pastor to get to like teach people how worthy Jesus is. It's another thing to get to hear you guys sing it back. Like that's, that's a very special thing for me. It, it, it's a small reason why I love to get to play keys because I get to hear you guys getting to declare a lot of the same stuff that we've been learning. And it's, it is, I don't know, it hits me more getting to hear you guys sing it than for me to get to tell you about it, if, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm always excited to get to hear when we're declaring these praises. We are in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Uh, we're not going to cover the entire chapter because uh, I gave you guys a whole mouthful to chew on last week with doing half of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. But if you remember from last week, we were talking about how Jesus was better than knowledge. Right? That when, when God shows up and he wants to mature our faith, to grow us in life with him, he doesn't necessarily aim to just teach us something new or show us something different. He shows up and he says, I need you to trust what you have seen in me, what you've seen me doing, what you've known of me. And as you begin to trust me now, I can start to move you into new places and new seasons of life. And we kind of ended with these two questions. Uh, what do I feel is missing? And where is God in my pursuit? So I hope you got to wrestle with that a little bit this week. Because it's good for us to be able to say, okay, God, what am I, what am I really looking for? Right? What do I feel is missing that, Lord, I feel like as I'm trying to trust you, there's this thing over here that I'm just, I'm just not sure about you with. I'm just not sure what that looks like. What do we feel is missing? And where is God in my pursuit? You know, are we looking to trust God? Or are we saying, God, I really need you to teach me something different? Essentially, we described it last week as I'm trying to move to a different foundation for my faith. Hopefully that's not where we're headed. But I kind of spoiled it a little bit this morning. The end of chapter 6 ends with verse 20, which says that Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I felt really bad just kind of dropping that on you guys and not touching it because there's a lot to unpack in there. But I felt like you probably wouldn't want to hear two sermons at one time last week. So I saved it for this week. So in Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to talk a lot about Melchizedek today and we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament and pick up on some things because it's going to help us see why this connection is huge. But here's where we're going today, guys. Jesus is greater than the law's reconciliation. Right, another way to put it, all throughout history, we've been looking for a way to be reconciled, right? Like We can feel that something's not quite right and that we want to be made right with one another with God, if, you know, if we're here this morning, we want to be right with God. There's a lot of different ways we've tried to go about doing that. And the author of Hebrews, remember, he's talking to a formerly Jewish audience. He says, here is the way. Jesus has brought us 
a perfect way to be right with God. So Jesus is our perfect reconciliation. That's the, the first part of what we're, we're going to be talking about this morning. The second piece, why is he our perfect reconciliation? Because he brings God's peace and God's righteousness together to us. Okay, and, and hopefully we'll feel that when we get to it this morning. Yeah, we're really wanting that. Like most of our struggles in our world come from we don't have peace about something and we don't, we're not really sure if we're right in what we're doing. Jesus brings us both God's peace and his righteousness together. So beginning in chapter 7, let's look at verse 1. We're going to go to about verse 22. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by whom of it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. God, we are grateful this morning. I mean, I know as we're reading this, there's, there is so much in there, Lord, uh, <laughs> that your, your audience of the first century would have understood far greater than we do, Lord. You were speaking to your people, and you knew what they needed to hear. You knew the encouragement that they needed to have because of what you have done in your son. Father, we pray that the same spirit that would have helped 
this audience know just exactly this encouragement and this hope. God, we need this today. May your spirit move in us, Lord, because this, who Jesus is, changes everything for us, Lord. And I confess, just from this week, God, I have, I've seen my own shortcomings in what we just talked about last week, that, that it is so hard for me at times to really trust that who you are and what you have done for me, God, is worth actually surrendering my life to. Father, there, there are strongholds in me and I'm sure in all of us that we just don't really want to let go of over to you. And God, I'm grateful for your grace and for your patience, but also for your firmness with us, Lord, that you show us and keep showing us how because you are better, we can trust you and we need to trust you if we are going to live well with you. So Father, open our ears and our eyes this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So before we kind of start, you know, getting to the application and talking about what all of this means, we have to know who Melchizedek is. And it's, it's not something that I normally do, trying to, to preach on three verses of scripture, but that's all we get with Melchizedek, because there's three verses of him in Genesis where he shows up kind of out of nowhere and says some things to Abram, and then you don't really hear of him again. But apparently that three-verse interaction is something that David picks up on Psalms, and the author of Hebrews picks up on here in chapter 7. So this, I don't know if that was like maybe the first three verses that the Jews as kids must have memorized or something, but it was important to them, whatever was going on with Melchizedek. So we're going to start with him this morning. And where we're going to kind of land as we hear about Melchizedek, is that Jesus is our perfect reconciliation, guys. So beginning in verse 1, here's what we're told about Melchizedek. First, that he is the priest of the Most High God. Okay, so that's a big deal. That he was a priest even before the Old Testament priesthood had been set up and established. So there's, there's something important there. We're told in verse 2 that Melchizedek that name itself means king of righteousness. But his position was he was the king of Salem. Now, Salem, uh, this surely would not have been the Salem that's 40 minutes away. Right? They did not have a king named Melchizedek. But Salem comes from the Hebrew shalom, which means peace. So here's a guy, Melchizedek, who's the king of righteousness, and he shows up as the king specifically over the city of peace. We're also told in verse 3, and I, I almost paused there as I'm reading it because it just sounds so wild to us, that we're told he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. Right? Now there's, there's a lot of different ways people take this. Uh, there's, one of the more common ones that I was reading this week is that I'll, most Bible scholars will say this is the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament, right? That all this language about Melchizedek, this sounds a lot like Jesus, right? Having, uh, without a father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. So whatever, whoever he was, he was clearly of God. He's described as being very much like God. And we're seeing that he, he met Abraham after something happened because it talks about Abraham giving 
spoils returning from the slaughter of the kings. And Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek. I don't know if you guys picked up on it. I primed that pump a little bit last week, talking about how to give a tithe to someone is essentially saying, I want to be at peace with you. Like, you're extending the opportunity for a relationship with me, and I want to enter into that. I want to live well, live at peace with you. But before we move on to this, verses 4 through 10 just give us all this commentary about why this tithe is a big deal and why all this is such a big deal. Let me read for you really quickly Genesis 14, these three verses that introduce us to Melchizedek. Because this is going to kind of show us where the author of Hebrews is going. So if you look at Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, and John, I think I put the slides there. It says, after his return from the defeat of, I'm going to butcher it, Shador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavet, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything to him. Okay, the context of when Melchizedek shows up, I didn't read the whole first 16 verses, but that is key. Melchizedek shows up and meets Abram right after Abram has rescued his nephew, Lot. If you're kind of familiar with some of the stuff that's taking place in Genesis right around there, if uh, Abram's nephew, Lot, was kidnapped by a bunch of other kings, he's taken away, and Abraham's like, I, I got to get my nephew back. And so he takes this like small group of guys that come from a couple other nations, and he goes, and he rescues his nephew and brings him back. As a little side note, there's a, there's a big theme in the Old Testament of when someone is referencing rescuing their family, you could almost say, well, they're rescuing someone who's in their image, right? Like, you know, we look like our parents, our nieces and nephews look like their parents. We all probably end up looking like our grandparents to some extent. Like, the picture of rescuing your family is one of rescuing someone in your image. So you could hear there's a little bit of God's heart being lived out right here. It's not an accident that Melchizedek shows up right after this guy who God is making this covenant with has just perfectly lived out the heart of God. Like I see someone who's been broken for me. My image has been broken for me. I'm going to go rescue him. And Melchizedek, the first thing we're told he does is he brings out bread and wine. Now, where else in Scripture have we heard about bread and wine being used? Most of you guys would say communion, right? This way that we have a, a practice to help us remember who God is and what he does, referencing what Jesus has done on the cross, right? Right? All of this being a picture of reconciliation. We see verse 19 that Melchizedek blesses Abram for being like God. He says, look, this God whose heart is to reconcile people to him, praise him for that. And good for you, Abram, for doing exactly just like God asked you to do. Just like God made us for. And then in verse 20, Abram tithes Melchizedek. Right, This picture of I am giving back to you. You have... 
asked me to join covenant, you have given me a blessing. And because I want to live in that blessing and be at peace with that blessing, I'm giving part of it right back. So the picture from Genesis 14, God shows up. He offers a covenant to someone who's just perfectly displayed his heart. And Abram says, yes, Lord, I want that heart. Now when you go back to Hebrews 7, it makes a little bit more sense why all this tithing thing is so important. If you look at Hebrews 7, 4 through 7, we're told that Abraham tithing Melchizedek meant that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. I can almost hear the author of Hebrews like arguing this before a judge. Verse 7, he says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. I'm thinking, man, it is it's tough to argue once somebody has said it is beyond dispute that this is true. So Melchizedek giving tithe to, or Abraham giving tithe to Melchizedek is his way of saying, okay, God, whatever you are asking me to do, I, I am not worthy of this. You are greater than me, but I want to enter into this with you. Verses 8 through 10, the author pulls out this, this reminder to the Jews, and he says, look, you guys know how you used to receive reconciliation with God, right? That's the priests. And all this you know, temple sacrificing and, you know, if I commit this sin, I need to bring this offering to the temple. He says, like, you guys know that that's how that used to happen. He traces it back and says, you got that through your ancestors in Levi. But we get this weird statement in verses 9 through 10. One might say that even Levi himself, who receives tithes, right? So the people are saying the priests are better than they are. Levi paid tithes through Abraham, so he was still in the loins of his ancestor, Levi being the son of Jacob, Isaac, or Jacob slash Israel, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So the author of Hebrews is telling his audience, look, you know the old way of what you used to have, of what made you right with God. But you also know from a place you guys would have known extremely well in Scripture, even then, all the way back at Genesis, they were pointing something better was coming. Even before your priesthood was set up, guys, you guys knew something better had to come. There was a reconciliation better than the law. And verses 11 through 14 just kind of if you put yourselves in the audience's shoes at this point, their minds are, this is a mind-blowing moment for them, right? Like, they're sitting here going, wait a minute, this whole priesthood thing, like, did, did we need this? Like, even before it was set up, we knew that it wasn't good enough? Like, if, if we are in their shoes, this is the moment of sermon where you guys are going, wait, 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 what? And I love how in verses 11 through 14, the author just kind of asks these questions, he says, and I know your minds are blown a little bit, okay? So I know some of the questions that are running through your head. Verse 11, the question, wait a minute. If the old law didn't make us right with God, is, is that what Jesus did? Like, is, is that why we needed a new law? Verse 12, why did Jesus declare that he fulfilled or freed people from the law if a priesthood changes, there's a new law. So wait, does, does Jesus bring a new law? Verse 13, wait, 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 wait. Melchizedek wasn't even a priest. Like, how can you say he, he wasn't a priest under Levi? Like, how could he have made reconciliation happen? How could he prove it's better? And then the, the big one, verse 14, that they would have said, now hold up, hold up, author of Hebrews. Jesus, we all know he's of the tribe of Judah. 
And we all know, guys, Judah wasn't a priest. Uh, there were no priests that came out of Judah. So how could, how could Melchizedek be a priest better than the law? How could Jesus be a priest better than the law? Right? All these questions swirling around in the audience's head of saying, how's that even possible? Like, I can kind of see where we missed that, but how is it possible that Jesus really is better? And this is where we hit verses 15 through 22, where the author really says, here's what makes Jesus' reconciliation better. Here's why God had to make a new priest from Melchizedek instead of through Levi. First, we're told Christ is better than the law, right? That the Levitical priesthood sat underneath the law. So as it was passed down to their kids and their kids and their kids and their kids, right, the law was also passed down. But we're told that Jesus is not of that line. In fact, we're told he's the likeness of Melchizedek in verse 15. Likeness there is the Greek word homoiotis. And I love when random words just show up that aren't used, but like a handful of other times in scripture, because it's really, it's a lot easier to tell what they're trying to say. When it says Jesus is in the likeness of Melchizedek, we saw that verb actually back in chapter four, where it says how Jesus was tempted just like us. So this connection to Jesus being just like us. But also, all the way back in Genesis 1, we're told that God created trees out of the likeness of the seeds. So it's the same image of the seed, the core of something, is what I'm talking about. That God says that Jesus is not just like or similar to or in the same characteristics of Melchizedek. He says, of the same stuff that Melchizedek had, we now have. Of the same stuff that you guys have struggled with, I have brought you a priest in that line. It says, verse 16, Christ is not a priest on the basis of a legal requirement. Right? He didn't just inherit the right to do this, but he is by the power of an indestructible life. I don't know about you, that sounds like a decent foundation for a priest, Right? a little bit stronger than the law. He has an indestructible life. That's the guy I would want to have as my priest. Not only is Christ better than the law, but he makes us perfect. Verse 19 tells us just flat out, the law made nothing perfect. Perfect is the Greek word teleo, which kind of gives us this idea of reconciliation, of bringing something to completion, taking something that was broken, refurbishing it, smoothing out the rough edges, changing the parts that are broken, and bringing it until it's completely new again. It says the law could not do that. It calls the law weak and useless in verse 18. The law is not this thing, not this better hope through which we draw near to God, verse 19. But the author of Hebrews says, but Jesus does this. He does this for us. And verses 20 and 21 show us that Jesus, not only is he better than the law, not only does he make us perfect, which the law couldn't do, but Jesus fulfilled the law. It says all these priests in the Old Testament, they just, because they were under the law, they got their right to be priests, right? The law said, okay, descendants of Levi, you guys are going to be priests, and here's what you're going to do, and here's what this is going to look like. 
But God shows up and says, no, I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to make a new oath. Same thing like I did with Levi, but I'm doing a new thing now in Jesus. So we get this huge argument from the author of Hebrews all through chapter 7. Look, God needed a priest who wasn't under this weak and useless law, right? If the law could not make us right with God permanently, once and for all, and if that's really what God is after, and that's really the life he has for you and me, he had to step in and give us something better, and that's Jesus. Jesus is our perfect reconciliation. And before we move to application, guys, I think we need to spend just a moment on understanding why is this such a big deal, okay? Why does it matter? This, this is the, the point in seminary where we're raising our hands and saying to the professor, okay, great, you've explained all the language, you've, you've shown the argument, like, what does this mean? Like, why do we care about this? The picture the author of Hebrews is giving his audience, and we have to put our, our former Jew hats on for this, that Jesus is giving us both God's peace and God's righteousness. If we're sitting in the place of the the formerly Jewish audience that's listening to this, right? They're going to be thinking about what did reconciliation look like under the law, right? Like, okay, if Jesus is so much greater than what we have, you're thinking about, then what did we have, right? One of the things they would have had is a temporary forgiveness, right? It was based on sacrifices that would cover you for a time, but nothing could really permanently change it. It was just more like an act of forgiveness. Their, their reconciliation under the law was also unreliable. How many of you guys have ever read Jonah? Jonah being one of those priests of Israel, you can read that book and go, wait a second, Jonah's the only one in this book that actually doesn't want to be right with God. Like God's priests were not, Reliable. Yet this is who Israel was depending on to make sacrifices for themselves. And God even had to put in his law priests because I know you're also unreliable and you also need sacrifices. You have to first offer sacrifices for yourself before you can even go offer sacrifices for the people. Like this system was not reliable. But the biggest hardship that the audience is now starting to see for the first time is that the law could not give us peace and righteousness together. Sacrifices could make you right for a moment, which would feel great, but it couldn't hold you in God's righteousness forever. Priests could bring you into peace with God for a moment, but as soon as the priests themselves fell, then you didn't have that anymore. Like They could not hold it together. And guys, I think if we, if we paused and we looked at our struggles with how we interact with our world, with how we just are on a daily basis, we feel this tension, right? Like we feel that we don't always have peace. Like it is, for some of us, it is a constant battle to say, okay, I'm going to have to be really loving to that person today and I really don't feel like it. Okay, Lord, I was really wronged by this and, and I'm just not there. Like it is hard work to stay at peace. And it's also a hard work to feel Righteous. Like, how many of you guys have ever just wanted to say, God, just, just tell me that what I'm doing is good, right? Like, I'm trying so hard to do something for you. Just give me some assurance. Like, we want peace. We want righteousness. 
But as I was thinking about this week, in me, again, I don't want to read this into you guys, but in me, I think I struggle with this because I often pit the two of them against one another. The law couldn't hold it together. Not only do I not hold it together, and for me, it just it all comes back to this power production self. This whole idea that we've been on with, with what sin has done. See, I, I may view peace as compromising, right? There's something in me, myself, that says, well, hold up. I'm going to have to give up something to live at peace. I, I'm going to have to let go of something in order to be at peace. I'm not sure if I really want that. I view peace as hard work, right? The production in me says it is easier to rally people to fight for a cause than it is to rally people together to fight for unity. Not sure why, but we wrestle with that, guys. And we see that in our world. It's, it is way easier to rally to fight for a cause than to rally to fight for peace. We also, sometimes, we, I, I see peace as weakness, right? Man, if I show up, and I reconcile with somebody, they might not hear all the things I want them to know. Or, you know what? When we're in tension, I can almost feel like I've got a little bit of power over the other person, right? Like, they know we're not right. They know that I'm, that I'm kind of waiting for them to forgive me. We have a little bit of power that goes to our heads when we're not at peace. We lose that when we pursue peace. Righteousness on the other side, though, sometimes that just feels... Also like a power grab, right? Might makes right is our, our old saying. So you're saying, okay, well, who are you to have to tell me what's right or not? So we kind of pit righteousness against peace. We pit it against peace as, as legalism, right? You're just out to tell me what to do. I don't, I don't want peace there. That's not what righteousness looks like. Sometimes we hold righteousness as, as shaming almost. You're saying, well, if you're telling me that that's the right way of doing something, you're calling who I am and what I do wrong. I mean, not to spend too much time here, but guys, we often pit righteousness and peace against one another, where we feel like if I'm going to be right with something, I'm going I'm to sacrifice peace in order to make sure that I'm right. And sometimes we say, well, let's just all be at peace. Right? And, and, and maybe I just, I don't really need to, to correct anything. I don't need to lovingly share anything. Let's just be at peace. We sacrifice one for the other. And I think the author of Hebrews knows his audience is going through that. We've talked about this is a formerly Jewish audience. This is the early church. They were facing a lot of persecution. And when things get hard, when that church felt the persecution from their, their government, from the former Jews, from their neighbors, you can imagine some of them just are like, I just, I just want to be at peace. I can't, I can't handle all this anger, this, this violence that's against me. I just want to be at peace. You know, I don't even care. Sure, Jesus was great. But if, if you know, saying I, I'll, just, I'll just be a little bit quieter about Jesus so I can just be at peace with my neighbors. You could also imagine people in the church saying, no, Jesus was right. We got to stand up and make a, make a stand against all these people that don't like Jesus. We wrestle with that tension when things we feel are not right. So it's not an accident that the author of Hebrews, as they're making this case, 
that Jesus is a perfect reconciliation, the language that they're using says he's perfect because he does both. Jesus doesn't pit peace and righteousness against one another. Jesus doesn't just make you at peace or right with God and with one another for a time. It is in Christ. These things are perfectly held together. We're clued into this when we're told, look, Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was literally the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He was both. And Jesus is just as he is. As Abraham is giving tithes to Melchizedek, he's saying, no, that guy, that guy who can hold righteousness and peace together, that guy is the real deal. David picks up on this that I read in Psalm 110. He says, no, Lord, you hold righteousness and peace together. That's it. Like, I want that, God. That is the priest that I want to have. That's the life that I want to have. Hold this in me together, God. Jesus was the priest in Melchizedek's line. He was the one the Old Testament points to. He ends our struggle, guys, to have righteousness and peace. Because we're painfully aware, just as the Jews were here, the law couldn't do it. This is why, verse 19, this is why a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is why, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is our perfect reconciliation because he holds peace and righteousness together. Now, we can talk about what we do with that. And I realize there's a perfect little picture of this. I have never really read it in this light, but it, it fits. It's a story that shows up in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm not going to read it out of all of them. Uh, I'm going to read it out of Mark, and that's a little bit to y'all's benefit because Mark tends to use fewer words. He gets a little bit more to the point. So we're going to look real quick. Let me, I'm not going to read it, actually, because that's also more time. But in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, there's a story there many of you have heard, the rich young ruler. And the struggle that this rich young ruler has is this struggle of peace and righteousness and the law and where Jesus comes to fit in. If you can remember, it's this guy who approaches Jesus and he says, Jesus, you're a good teacher. Like, I've perfectly held the law together my entire life. I feel like I've got peace and I've got righteousness. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus acknowledges to this guy, he says, yeah, you have done it. You have perfectly kept the law. And he looks at them, and I love because Mark adds the little, the little tiny bit of commentary Mark gives is that Jesus looks on this man with love, with love. And in verse 21 tells him, you lack one thing. Like, dude, you have done it perfectly. There's just, there's just one thing you're missing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Essentially, what Jesus is telling the young man is, look, I see in you this desire to have my peace and my righteousness. You've pursued it through the law. You've accumulated all this stuff, and you've taken it as a sign that because, hey, look at, I mean, I'm described as the rich young ruler. That would be a great description for most of us today. I'm thinking, okay, 
Like, I've I got to be pretty close, right, Jesus? Like, if, if you're calling me the rich young ruler and you're telling me I've kept the law, I should have peace and righteousness, right? And Jesus says, I actually need you to sell everything that you have been given to surrender to say you really don't have the peace and righteousness that you think you have. But come and follow me and you will have it. The young ruler walks away sad in verse 22 because he had great possessions. And I'd always just thought, well, it's because he didn't want to give them up. But it's really because Jesus has said, the peace and righteousness that you believed you have had, you don't. But son, I love you. Let me show you where you can have peace. Let me show you where you can have righteousness. We're told in verse 26, the disciples have been watching this whole encounter, and they are freaking out. These guys who had known the Jewish law, they're saying, wait, Jesus, you just told that guy he perfectly kept the law, and we know that that's pretty near impossible. And you told him he's not peace. He has no righteous. Like, God, they say in verse 26, who can be saved? Like, they're saying, Jesus, if anybody, surely that guy, you would have said, what, Jesus, what? Who can be saved? And that Jesus answers with this verse that we love and probably have memorized before in verse 27. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus says, look, that wasn't going to bring peace. That wasn't going to bring righteousness. But with God... Jesus is saying, with me, you're with me, you have both. Guys, we are very similar to the rich young ruler. Right? We have our standards of what we think show us how good we are, how righteous we are, how peaceful we are with God. Sometimes we even approach Jesus as the rich young ruler does in verse 17. We approach him and say, Jesus, you're the good teacher, right? You're the one who has the authority to be able to validate me, to be able to tell me that what I've done is right, to tell me what I've done gives me peace. Jesus calls out that rich young ruler in verse 18. says, why do you call me good? Why, why are you looking for me to validate you? No one is good except God alone. And the question that Jesus asks this rich young ruler is simply, would you be willing to lay down everything you're wanting God to validate in your life to be with him? Jesus says, son, you, you have been doing your best to make peace and righteousness happen in your life. Would you be willing to lay it down to receive the real peace and righteousness that I have? And that question that he asked the rich young ruler is the same one that he answers or asks of us. A very simple illustration of what this looks like, at least from my own life. Um, after the kids go to bed, and after Abigail and I will catch up on whatever we need to catch up on over the span of the day, the only time that, that I have to maybe <laughs> do something for Jordan, like, you know, do something in my free time. My free time starts at like 10, 30, 11 p.m. And most of you are probably asleep at 10, 30, 11 p.m. Most of you are probably wanting to be asleep at 10, 30, 11 p.m. 
right? So, so I have my list of things that I, I like to do at that time of day. Uh, so I'll, I'll finish up my, my quiet time and my note-taking in Scripture. But then I, I love to draw, and I just, just know I'm an engineer by heart, okay? I love to draw roadmaps. So I've got all these pads of, of, you know, downtown landscapes and things. And if you tear out all the pages of these notebooks and laid them end to end, they would, they'd all fit, right? It's, it's the same roads because that's just that's how my brain tries to bring order to things. So I love to draw the roadmaps. Sometimes my, my sister-in-law got me a book of, of puzzle solving for Christmas, you know, like the ones where it's, like you have the, these five people have, you know, these five shades of hair and these five jackets and these five shoes and you have to like, you're given five clues and you're matching up which one does which. Like I, I like those a lot. I'm not great at them, but I like them. Um, or sometimes I'll read, right? Like you're just like, okay, Jordan, like yes, that sounds like what an engineer would do in their free time. I love that time. But sometimes when I take that time, it gets to be midnight, 1 a.m. before I fall asleep. Because your brain is working really hard in those moments. So then the next day, uh, you can, I mean, what happens when you just stay up till midnight, 1 a.m., and then the kids wake you up at 6, right? You don't tend to be very patient. You don't tend to be very gracious. You don't tend to listen very well. Uh, the people in your house will point that out to you very quickly. And, and my approach, and this is, I've had this conversation with the Lord many times. I tell him, God, like all I'm trying to do is just something I enjoy doing, right? This is not a bad thing that you told me, like I'm supposed to, to rest, right? Because you may be in your image, you're a God of rest. This thing I like to do helps me rest. Like why are you making the next morning so hard? Why can't I stay in your image if all I'm doing is this good Thing And what Jesus is kind of showing us here in Hebrews 7 is, no, no, it's, it's not an issue of whether you're doing the right thing or not, Jordan. The issue is that you are waiting until that time of the day and saying, this is what's going to bring me rest, right? Not the time spent putting the kids to bed. Not the time spent catching on the day with Abigail. Not the time that you spent with me and your word. You're waiting until you can do what you want to do that you find restful and saying that is when I will have rest. And I can tell that that's what he's saying because I look at the fruit of what happens when I think that way the next morning and I do not look like the image of God at that point. Because I am not patient, I am not listening, I am not loving at that. So God's question to me, just as he's asking the rich young ruler, saying, Jordan, I get that you enjoy those things. Those are not good nor bad things. They're things that you can do to bring you into rest. But it is not always wise for you to choose to do that because those things will not bring you peace. They will not bring you righteousness, Jordan. Would you be willing to say, maybe I don't get to do these things whenever I want to, to find real peace and real righteousness with me. So that is the question that we are left with. Look, if Jesus really is the one who can perfectly make us right with God, who brings us his peace, and brings us his righteousness. The question we have today is the same that he asks the rich young ruler. Would you be willing to lay down the things that you think you need to bring you these things to be with me? And I get that that is a nice 
theoretical question. So here's three practical ones to help you kind of answer that one. The first one, what in my life, if God asked me to give it up, would I say no to and why? Like if God told me tomorrow that I'd never be able to draw another roadmap, that would, would not sit very well with me. I would miss that. So in a very small way, okay, Lord, why would I have a hard time letting go of that? Is it because I really think that is what's going to bring me into God's rest, or is that just one thing out of many that God could use to bring me into his rest? What in my life, if God asked me to give it up, would I say no to and why? Second question, where am I missing out on peace? Because where we're missing out on peace, guys, usually means that we're viewing peace as compromise. We're struggling to, to have peace because it's a really hard work. We see peace as a weakness. Where am I missing out on peace? God, you may need to correct me in that moment. Where am I missing out on righteousness? God, I'm having a really hard time seeing if I'm right with you on this, but Lord, maybe my focus is just not on the right place at this moment. So hopefully those questions will kind of help you get to the bigger one that God is asking. Would you be willing to lay down everything you want me to validate in your life to be with me? Are we trusting Jesus is our perfect reconciliation, guys. He does bring both God's peace and God's righteousness together. So let's invite the Spirit to wrestle with us through these questions as we pray. We say, God, most high, most glorious, the thought of thine infinite serenity cheers me. For, Lord, life for me is toiling and moiling. It's troubled and distressed, but thou art forever at perfect peace. Thy designs cause thee no fear or care of the unfulfillment. They stand fast as the eternal hills. Thy power knows no bond, thy goodness no stint. Thou brings order out of confusion, and my defeats are thy victories. The Lord God reigns forever. I come to thee as a sinner with cares and sorrows, to leave every concern entirely to thee, every sin calling for Christ's precious blood. Revive deep spirituality in my heart, Lord. Let me live near to the great shepherd, to hear his voice, to know its tones, to follow its calls. God, keep me from deception by causing me to abide in the truth. Keep me from harm by helping me to walk in the power of the Spirit. Lord, give me a more intense faith in the eternal verities, burning into me by experience the things I know. Let me never be ashamed of the truth of your gospel, Lord, that I may bear its reproach, vindicate it, see Jesus as its essence. Know it in the power of the Spirit. Lord, help me. For I am often lukewarm and chill. And unbelief mars my confidence. And sin makes me forget thee. That's me, Lord. Let the weeds that grow in my soul be cut at their roots. Grant me to know that I truly live only when I live to thee and that all else is trifling. Thy presence alone, God, can make me holy, make me devout, make me strong, make me happy, can bring me peace, can bring me righteousness. Abide in me, gracious God.